Listen, who's ever read the book of, book of Acts before? Raise your hand. I've read it many times. I was listening to it in the car this week, and it so happened to remind me of what God's doing here. Go ahead and turn to Acts 2 with this. Acts 2.42. Say there when you're there. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Say all things. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had needed. Let's stop there for a minute. Because we all came together in unity in the one association, we were able to raise enough funds to send our brothers to Romania. Can we get an amen for that? We're not only advancing in Romania, but soon to be Italy. I've been talking to Pastor Massey this week, and he was talking to me about some of the plans that are taking part. And soon enough, we're going to see even homes, churches being established in Italy. Isn't that amazing? This only gets done through people like the people we see here in Acts 2. Let's continue. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Listen, here we see the early church's response to a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. We just see the day of Pentecost coming. Jesus said, go, tarry in Jerusalem, and my Spirit from on high will rest upon you. There was tongues of fire. There was tongues. People were operating in the gifts of the Spirit. People were gathering. They were watching the Holy Spirit move. Doesn't it sound like what's happening right now? There was a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. There among themselves was a devotion to the word, a devotion to one another, and a devotion to the kingdom and its king, Yeshua. Come on, this kingdom is about people. This kingdom is, is about the king. This kingdom is about growing with one another. Not only did Jesus just die for the sins of the world shortly before this account here, but has multiplied himself through all men and women. This level of commitment to God and his people is what perpetuated even the possibility of us standing here together today. We see those who are pouring out their lives unto the Lord, but it so happens that they're pouring out their lives unto each other as well. They have vowed their lives to God and are living in the benefits of a new covenant to Christ. Hallelujah! By his wounds, we have been healed. Hallelujah, we have been called a kingdom of priests. And hallelujah, we stand unified under one spirit and one covenant through the works of our Lord. Listen, now we get to live in the covenant. Somebody say covenant. Covenant. Which we have chosen to take part in. It was by our choice. We now get to take part in this amazing covenant. Church, today our sermon title is going to be Living in Covenant. Amen. Amen. Living in Covenant. Now, we don't want to move on too quickly from last week's message. 
Is this mic loud or no? no. Am I tripping? No. Sounds okay? All right. Oh, I'm not tripping. <laughs> For okay. the front row, it sounds perfect. <laughs> now, as I was saying, we don't want to move on too quickly from last week's message and the engaging story that was brought to our attention by Pastor Mike. Because it's with Henry Stanley's heart posture and obedience to the call that we present you this message today. Let's take a second to revisit that story. It will not be on the screen because you couldn't read it anyways. But let's recap for a second about the man who learned the wisdom of receiving scars that started as wounds through a life of obedience to the will of God. For those of you who weren't here last week, this is an excerpt from the Miracle of the Scarlet Thread. It says, in 1869, the New York Herald newspaper sent their overseas news correspondent, Henry Stanley, to find the Scottish missionary and explorer, Dr. David Livingstone. Now, Dr. Livingstone had disappeared for six years, and Stanley was sent to prove he was not dead. In 1871, he found Livingstone. During his expedition, Stanley came in contact with a powerful African tribe, but he was in no condition to fight them. When his interpreter suggested he make a covenant with a tribal chieftain, Stanley did so, which required days of negotiations with the tribal chief. After the terms of the covenant were reached, an exchange of gifts ensued. The chief wanted Stanley's goat, and nothing less in exchange for his seven-foot spear. Stanley reluctantly yielded, but he felt he got the lesser end of the deal. The goat had provided Stanley's much-needed milk for his health. So what good would a spear be to him? Well, that's more than he realized. Next, the tribal priest brought forth a cup of wine, and the old chief selected one of his sons, a prince, and required Stanley to select an Englishman. Both became substitutes for the covenant makers and representatives of the two parties. The priest made an incision in each man's wrist and let their blood drip into the wine. The cup was stirred and they drank from the mixed blood and wine. Then the priest pronounced terrible curses over Stanley. Then Stanley's interpreter pronounced curses over the chief his family, and his tribe. Curses that would come upon anyone who broke the covenant. Finally, the two men rubbed their cut wrists together along with gunpowder to mingle their blood and become blood brothers. The gunpowder scar remained as a visible mark of their covenant. This act not only bound Stanley and the chief together, it included the tribal warriors, with the company of the Englishmen. The blood brotherhood became permanent, and the tree was planted as a memorial of the covenant. After the covenant ceremony, the chief declared to his people, Come, buy and sell with Stanley, for he is our blood brother. From then on, Stanley and his men no longer guarded their possessions. Nothing was touched. To steal from Stanley and his men, for anybody was to break the covenant and steal from the chief himself, an act which brought the penalty of death. Everywhere Stanley went in Africa, the spear proved 
to be more powerful than Stanley's goat. That copper-wound spear carried the old chief's authority, and everybody bowed to him and submitted to him. Blood covenant was so sacred it was never broken by anyone. Neither Stanley or Livingstone ever witnessed anyone breaking it. No one could remain alive in the whole country of Africa who broke a covenant. The curses would overtake them, carried out by the people bound to the covenant. Covenants were so revered that children to the third and the fourth generations would keep it. Wow. Was that an encouraging message last week? I know there was a lot thrown at us, and I'm still chewing on some of it. And some of it really blessed me, and I know the rest will. But listen, a few things that were brought up in this story that we don't want to move too quickly from is that goat can represent your goat-like nature previous to her encountering Christ. Because, see, your previous life you were providing for yourself, man. You were all on your own. You did everything for yourself. The goat provided Stanley the things he needed to live. He provided him sustenance. He provided him milk for the nourishment of his body. That doesn't sound like a bad thing, does it? But the spear that was given to him by the chief made the enemies that approached him tremble with fear. Because the authority that the chief carried that everyone knew about, Stanley now carried. It wasn't Stanley's own authority, but an authority that was given to Stanley by way of the chief. It also took Stanley and the chief mutual wounds to get there. Was that maybe kind of hard to take for some of you? That you have to get cut up to be healed? That interacting with your brothers and your sisters might get you cut up a little bit, but you'll heal together in the end? Listen, it took mutual wounds for Stanley and the chief to get to the covenant. But once they were there, the covenant was never broken even unto death. Their children, down to the third and fourth generations, didn't even break the covenant. Imagine if we, just for a minute as we start to get into our message this morning, imagine as we, as followers of Messiah, walked out this type of covenantal relationship with him, where we refused to break the covenant no matter what the cost. Amen. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, that's because we should. And let's be honest, we strive for it. Man, do we want that. That sounds amazing. The Bible teaches us that we should be living in that type of covenantal relationship. But how often do we realistically live in it? Like how often do we actually live out our covenant responsibility, our part of it? How often do we uphold it like in its fullness, perfectly? I think we have some work to do. And we're excited to be able to work through those very things together with you this morning, knowing that our Heavenly Father empowers us and gives us the strength and ability to live within the covenant rightly. Now, as encouraging as a testimony as Henry Stanley is, there is a greater testimony of one who we call Messiah Yeshua, who we will read about and glean from this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, so the word covenant is a huge word in our scriptures. It's something that not many people understand today, especially in a day and age where even just the word commitment is a scary word. 
just to be committed in marriage, to be committed in brotherhood, to be committed to a church body, to be committed to your job, to be committed to your children, to be committed to whatever have you. This is a, even the word commitment can be scary today, much less, much more covenant. Now, the word covenant, we don't want to belabor you with the legalities today of all the way back to the times of Abraham of what first covenants really looked like. That is a beautiful subject to speak on, but it's not our heart today. Our heart today is to be able to understand that you, whether or not you understood the weightiness or the realities of of coming into and living in covenant with Christ, with our Father in heaven, and with each other as his body in the first place, we're all here together today. And so we have to know and we have to understand how to live inside of covenant with him and with each other Amen. now so that we can continue to make it another day glorifying our God. Amen. Amen. We want to proclaim to you the example of Yeshua, our Messiah, our Christ, our Lord, displayed while in the body among us. As pastors and as brothers and as friends, we discussed this extensively this week. We discussed how do we walk in the fullness of this covenantal nature of Yeshua? How do we do it? Because it seemed to have been the foundation of not only why he came, but how he did the works that he did. We'll get to some examples of that in, in Yeshua's life today. How do we walk in the fullness of, covenant, of the covenantal nature of Yeshua? Is relationship with other people the primary focus? Is being in Yahweh's presence the, quote, end all, be all? Is, quote, just do what you know is right the ultimate teaching? Or is the charismatic, spirit-filled life the finish line or the starting line? Which one is it? See, these were all great points to speak about. We wrestled through every one of them ourselves. And none of them were found useless or unimportant. With this, we have four things for you to take a hold of today. Are you ready? Yeah. Come on. Number one of what does it take or how do we walk in the covenantal nature of our God? Number one, our ability to do it is founded upon the character of Yahweh. See, his perfect nature, his holy, 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 set apart, set apart, set apart character and nature is is the contract of the covenant that we live in with him. If he were not perfect as he is, then we would not be able to have the type of covenant that we do in him, which then gives us permission to live in it with each other. So we realize that number one, we have to acknowledge the perfect character and nature of our God. Do you understand why good teaching must preface everything else then? That your personal revelation, whether by teaching or by prayer and interaction with his presence, is incredibly important because if you find him to be faulty, if you, found, if you find that his arm is short to save or his ear is deaf to hear, then you are fundamentally on the wrong footing for being able to interact with anybody in a, in a holy kind of way. Does that make sense? If you feel like your God could betray you at any second, how are you going to treat other people? 
You're going to think that they could betray you at any second. If he is, quote, perfect, but he could turn on you at any moment, or if he just doesn't like you all that much, how are you going to perceive what other people think of you? Well, maybe they just don't like me that much. So this is the foundation of everything. He is our reference point, our inspiration, and ultimately the one whom we serve. Amen? Can you agree with that? Yes. Okay. Two is that our ability to live this covenantal lifestyle of being bound with Christ, living for him and in him and with him and with one another is made possible by Holy Spirit. Can you agree with that? Yes. Given, he is given to us to do the works that he, Christ, Yeshua, also did. His Holy Spirit has always been at work in men's hearts. Without his presence intercepting our hearts, we are left with an example to always glorify, but never imitate. Cue a huge portion of the modern Christendom, or really even historical Christendom as well, of like glorifying this perfect image. You, so that what does this say for us today? We can have a pure and holy image of who our God is. But if you don't believe that his Holy Spirit is interacting with you to empower you to be like him, then that's all you'll ever have is a glorified image and that's it. You can worship to the ends of your days but never end up behaving or being fruitful like our Messiah. Or number three, that we engage into this lifestyle by our willingness. You can, we have to start with acknowledging, number one, his, na his nature, his perfect character. Two, asking, Lord, will you empower me by your Holy Spirit to be like you? I know that I'm not today, but I desire, I just want to be like you. And then three, saying the willingness of God. Not only do I want to be like you on the inside, I want this to come out of me. So, Lord, I'm asking you in a heart of willingness to make opportunity for me to do this. That looks messy like the story that Pastor Mike shared last week and that Pastor Landon just shared with you. It always hurts. It's always difficult. And we'll get into some of that more today. Yeshua's willingness was a true marker in his testimony. He looked to the Father, was empowered by his Holy Spirit, and looked to a broken people with compassion in his eyes. And lastly today, we're going to cover this with you. That number four, it is executed. Say executed. Executed. Our covenantal lifestyle in Yeshua just like the way that he lives in covenant with himself, with Abba, is executed by our discipline. Because as men, we must still decide each day what we must do. Do you know that for yourself? I was just talking with a brother this morning of how we can be frustrated that we know what's right. We know God's character. We try to live the spirit-filled life. We do all of these things, but ultimately frustrated that we don't do what we know we ought to do that's because many many who seek to say lord lord ultimately at the end of each day don't make the decision in their hearts in their minds and with their bodies an action to do what they know they have seen revealed to them in the character of god does this make sense to you so ultimately we want to work with this assumption today Okay, we do not get to decide between God or people. Do you see the story that was shared with you last week and reminded 
you were reminded of it this morning. You don't get to decide between God or people. These men who have these valiant stories that we hear of, just like Stanley, ultimately, as he stood before God and wanted to be a, wanted to be a servant of our God, where does he end up at? In front of men who are broken and in need of him. And the only way he gets in is if you get some wounds and scars along the way. We don't get to decide between one or the other. So we want you to be able to ask yourself a sober question today. Which one do you run to? Do you tend to run to the people of God and flee the presence of God himself? Or do you tend to run to the presence of God and flee the people of God? Because there are plenty of examples in our scriptures of either one. And we're not suggesting to you that one is better than the other today. Because his presence is found within his people, but then his people are found in his presence. And ultimately, it all comes together. What's important for you to understand for yourself today is where do you need to pursue more? Because in covenant, in, in our God, it is not without the other people around us. And we can be committed to the local work of remnant church and whatever else God has us in and be lacking meeting with him face to face. Amen? Does this make sense? Ask Noah, was he, was he to ignore his children for the sake of obedience to God? Did God relieve him from the annoyance of the criticism of others around him? Ask Abraham, was the promise of God through those in covenant with him, Sarah, or through the slave woman, Hagar? Which one? He could not accomplish the will of the Father in heaven without right relationship with his covenant wife. Ask Jonah, was he excused from the hardships of his ministry? No. Consider Gideon, Samuel, Ruth, David, Elijah, Nehemiah, and ultimately our Messiah in Christ. All who sought to accomplish the will of God for their lives to complete their missions were required to acknowledge, one, God's character, two, be supernaturally empowered to imitate it, three, engage with him and others around them through willingness, and four, execute the will of God in unity with God and with his people so let me ask you to consider this today once again as Pastor Devin takes us into our next portion do you tend to feel more comfortable alone in the presence of God but you're willing to sacrifice other people around you or do you feel more comfortable in the crowd of God's people but afraid to come and meet with him face to face do you see that we cannot live without him? Do you see that today we cannot accomplish his works without each other? Can you see that? Then join us today in the conviction that we have in our hearts that we have come to this week. Of step by step what it means to, like Christ himself, live a life of covenant for obedience to our God and to the betterment of all of his creation. Amen. Somebody say, all in to all. All in all. This is all in all. We are both in covenant relationships with people and God. God is what brings it together. The Holy Spirit glues us together. We accomplish his work together. And guess what? It's the most beautiful thing that you've ever taken part in. 
Listen, we're going to go back to our first point. It's founded upon the character of Yahweh. Do you know who Yahweh is? It's God, the one from the beginning. Not Jesus. Jesus is Yeshua. But hey, they're three in one. <laughs> Yeshua, <laughs> or Yahweh. Yahweh from the beginning of mankind has called to ensure his son's success. Do you agree with that? Yeah. He made covenant with Israel and has been faithful to that covenant ever ever since the beginning of time and standing right here, right now. He's still faithful to his covenant that he made. What then should our character display to this world? That we are men and women who hold fast to covenant. Amen? Amen. We must replicate this to the world. A little faithfulness can go a long way. Obviously it did. It went all the way 4,000 years ago with Abraham, which we'll read about later. Our character must aim in every way to exemplify the way of our Father. Listen to John 5, verse 19 for this context this morning. As we find out that our character must be founded on the character of Yahweh. John 5, verse 19. You there? It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing. Say nothing. nothing. Of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Interesting. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he shows him, so that you must may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Come on, there is so much in that text. There's so many things we can glean to this morning. But this morning I want to glean to the character of Christ. Being him gleaning the character of Yahweh. Jesus looked to the Father as a standard that he could walk out in human form. Jesus himself was called the living word, not due to what he taught, but rather what he did. His nail-scarred hands, his, his scars would be held as a lasting testimony to even those who would doubt the Father's will in the future. These are tangible things. Christ is looking to the character of Yahweh and is in covenantal relationship with him. And he's saying, this is how we walk it out. This is what covenant looks like. Just as we were talking about last week, a covenantal life looks like taking upon scars. For Jesus, it was on his hands, on his side. Jesus, the Son of God, embodied his Father's will and looked to him to stay in step in this covenantal relationship. I'm like, how beneficial is a model? Yes. Meaning something that is modeled before you, you can look at it, it's tangible, you can see it. Has anybody benefited from that in their life? Yes. Now we become a model to others. Now others benefit from us modeling this life. And where do we get this life modeled from? We get it from Yahweh, from God, and His Son, Jesus, who modeled it for us. Covenantial relationship, living in covenant, must definitely look like action, 
and actions that proceeded from the son. Genesis 17, verse 9, or verse 1, we'll go back to the beginning where covenant began. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Then I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I shall, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be the God to you and to your offspring and after you. And I will give to you your offspring and after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Yahweh made covenant with Abraham 4,000 plus years ago, and he stands faithful to that covenant today. As we're beginning to unwrap Yahweh's character, his character only displays faithfulness. Right now, we read this passage to build context. Yahweh, for since the beginning of mankind, has displayed faithfulness to the covenant. Therefore, we as his people, as his sons, ought to display faithfulness to the covenant. What was spoken back in Genesis still remains to be God's ultimate goal. Like Abraham, we must ensure the success of our father's work by impressing the way of life handed down to us, to the next generation. This is how it's perpetual. This is how it grows through faithfulness, just as our father has been faithful. What we model comes from the example that the father has laid before our eyes. Listen, in verse 9, God points back to Abraham, the man he just made covenant with, and says this. And God said to Abraham, as for you, somebody say you. You "You shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Come on, could you imagine receiving a direct word from God that says, keep my covenant. And then not just you keep my covenant, your offspring after you keep my covenant. You're going to have to live as a man with conviction now. Do you think Abraham was a man of conviction? I hope so. Because God just stood straight in front of him and said, keep my covenant. (laughs) The father's expectation to us is that we would be as faithful as he is to the covenant. In turn, this would multiply throughout the generations until Abraham would become a father of many nations. And all nations would bow before Yahweh. Yahweh has always had a greater goal when it comes to covenants. And let me tell you, this is the greatest covenant that we could ever take part in. Not even at this time was the ministry unveiled that we get to take part in the covenant. Isn't it beautiful 
that God would graft us into this greater picture. Yes. But let me tell you something. His heart has always been for his people, Israel. And our hearts must be for his people, Israel. Right. Why? Because it was always a part of the original covenant. Yes. We're talking about living in covenant this morning. We must understand what the original covenant was. Abraham depended on Yahweh to give his clarity and direction to carry out within the covenant. And Yahweh depended on man, a man like Abraham to carry it out. A dependency between the father and the son began from the beginning of this covenant and this is how we walk it out yeah and before we move on to this next section where we're talking about empowerment i want you to consider today what other things you might have made the basis or the foundation or the contract for covenant with other people or with god for that matter in our in our modern world today the the at least the cultures and the environments that we live in it's covenants of convenience does that make sense yeah. it's the fact that i am willing to come into agreement with you because it's convenient to my life i'm willing to come into agreement with you because i need what you have i'm willing to come into agreement with you because my family needs this i'm willing to come into agreement with you because uh, it seems possible to me that I can actually follow through with it. What did Pastor Devin just read to you? The, our God, the creator of the universe, spoke from the heavens to a man who had no reference point for how to interact with him and said, you, after this interaction that you were having with me, you were to carry out all of this covenant that I have spoken over you and that I have executed with you. That doesn't seem particularly possible, does it? It doesn't seem entirely convenient because we find out really quickly what exactly it looks like when he's climbing a mountainside with his one and only son who he absolutely believes he is about to have to put on an altar to our God. See, it's not that it's possible, it's not that it's easy, it's not that it won't cost us anything, but it's founded upon you are not only a God, you are the God of the universe, and there is none like you, and you are perfect and high above everything and all else. That we can have a life of covenant built upon. Because where our character lacks, where convenience seems really nice, where things that hurt aren't particularly desired within our flesh, we can look to his perfect character and say, because you are who you, because you are who you say you are, God, then I today can walk with you and walk with other people the way that I need to. Think about one more thing for a second. Answer me this. Have you guys been called to participate in the same covenant that Abraham was called to participate in? Have you or have you not? Yes. yes. It was hard for Abraham. Think of how hard it is for us sometimes. We have Yeshua to glean from. We have our entire New Testament to glean from. We have the prophets and the writings and the law to glean from. Did Abraham have any of it? He was the first man outside of Adam that Yahweh stepped into genuine covenant with and said, this is my covenant. 
you are to keep it. Going back to what I said a few minutes ago, and it's what struck my heart as we're preparing this message today. I think we really have some things that we need to take a sober assessment of within our own lives as to how well we actually keep this covenant with Yahweh. Abraham didn't have Jesus. Yet at the same time, he carried out a prophetic example of who Jesus would be. Right? He didn't know anything about what was coming. And the Lord didn't mention anything to him. He's just like, hey, I'm, I want to redeem this nation. And I, make, I want you to be the start of it. Let's create one and let's redeem the whole creation together. Abraham didn't know it would be through Jesus. God didn't reveal that part of the plan. But he used Abraham to show through prophecy by example of what was to come that Messiah would be the living sacrifice for all of us. Keep that in mind. Abraham did not have what we have today. But he did a really, really fine job of keeping the covenant. Yeah. As we move into our second point, we start to understand that our covenant relationship with Yahweh needs to be founded on his character. And for those of you who say, I'm a New Testament Christian only, and Jesus is the only way, we're about to read throughout the rest of this message that everything Jesus does, as De Pastor Devin actually already alluded to, is founded upon the character of his Father. Yeah. It's founded upon Yahweh. When you look at the man Jesus, you are looking at Yahweh himself. Yeah. He is a perfect representation of Yahweh in the flesh. Full representation. Turn with me to Matthew 3. We start to understand that our covenant relationship with Yahweh has to be founded on his character, which is one of unbreakable covenant. And we cannot do it alone. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. When you get to Matthew 3, say covenant real loud when you get there. Covenant! Oh, dang. Amen. Obedient. <laughs> Piercing. Starting in verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now. For thus is fitting, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen, we see throughout Scripture, we'd be here all day if we showed you every Scripture in the Word about being empowered with the Holy Spirit. But we see throughout scripture that men from the beginning have been empowered by the spirit of God. It started with Adam when God breathed his very breath Amen. into the bones of Adam to make him live. That's right. So he could accomplish the task he had been given and uphold the covenant he made with Adam. This account in Matthew 3 marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What Jesus needed to accomplish while here on earth was made possible through Holy Spirit. Yeah. You also know that in Acts... Jesus commands the disciples to wait before they go out and receive the promised Holy Spirit. 
Acts 1, 4 through 5 says, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, why would they need to wait on the Holy Spirit? They've already seen the very embodiment of the character of Yahweh himself in the flesh. They've been walking with Yeshua for years at this point. Jesus knew that it's because we cannot live in a sustained, fruitful, covenant relationship with Yahweh or our brothers and sisters without Holy Spirit empowerment. We can see all throughout Scripture this is proven true. Since the beginning of creation, God's filled men with his spirit to accomplish the task that has been given them to carry out. And it stands true for us today, church. Why would it be any different today than it was for Adam? Why would it be any different today than it was for Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, the very forefathers of our faith as we know it? How many of you could actually carry out your part in the covenant? with Yeshua and Yahweh, but without his Holy Spirit to help you along the way. You'd be relying on yourself. Jesus told his disciples, do not leave here until you receive this because it is a must. It is necessary. You can't do what I'm asking you to do in your own strength. You must be empowered from on high. 1 Corinthians 1 says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You remember when Jesus called Peter and Andrew, they were fishermen, they're on the sea, they're fishing, and Jesus says, hey, you come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Did it happen right away? No. We're going to need y'all to participate this morning. Did it happen right away? But did it happen like wildfire by the time you get to Acts after the upper room? I mean, thousands upon thousands are being saved at the hands and feet and the doings of the apostles, the words that they speak, the actions they do, all empowered through Holy Spirit. But they spent three and a half years walking alongside the man who in Matthew got filled with the Spirit, but they hadn't quite been filled with the same Spirit yet. So they got to learn the character of Yahweh first before they got empowered by Holy Spirit knowing that it has to be founded upon the character of Yahweh. I won't talk about our crazy, charismatic Christian world outside these doors that may or may not be founded upon the character of Yahweh. Listen, before we encountered the Holy Spirit, we were not wise according to worldly standards, nor powerful, nor of noble birth. Well, we may have had some kind of idea of this covenant relationship and what we were stepping into, we had no real power to actually be able to understand or do what was being asked of us, much less uphold it and actually walk it out rightly. But if you notice, Paul's using past tense language in 1 Corinthians when he's writing this letter. He's saying, listen, 
Not many of you were. But now that you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, it goes without saying that you are these things. And it did not come before you got filled with the Spirit. Because if it had, you might not have never needed the Holy Spirit. You would have been blind. You would have been hard-hearted, stubborn. Not, none of us are those things today. But the Lord is sweet and genuine and graceful to us. And he reveals those things to us by the Spirit so that we can be redeemed from those things. Men were never intended to walk in covenant relationships without the empowerment to do so by the Holy Spirit. Despite knowing the character of God and being empowered by his spirit, we still need to examine points three and four. Because there's a few more things here that we need to ensure that we are living rightly within a covenant. Before we move to the third point, uh, who in here had an experience with the Lord where you got saved and then you're like, what did I sign up for? like dang it you're like yes but no because you still got a little bit of flesh left in you who's had that experience where you get saved you come into a covenant with god and you're saying oh lord this thing's lifelong i hope none of you did that when you after you got married but i know most of you did it once you got saved but god is growing you up into a pure bride amen Listen, these things aren't burdensome. These things are never meant to be a burden to you. They're meant to be a blessing to you. And along the way, we start living in covenant. And guess what? We actually start getting good at it. When we first got into this covenant, we were not good at it. And we despised it. But I'm telling you right now, he's growing you into who he is. Into his character. He's giving you his spirit. And he's calling you into a life of holiness. You know why? Because he believes you can be. Yeah. Amen. His power is good enough. And listen, he knew what he was marrying when he married you. Yeah. But he also knew what the completion would look like. Yeah. And the completion is coming. He is going to receive a pure bride. And guess what? He's purifying you. We're about to talk about willingness. Yeah. Willingness is everything amen <laughs> if you're not willing it won't move forward you know how many years or how much time i've spent being unwilling standing in one place and saying god i'm not going to move forward you can't live in the covenant like that you must be willing and you know what sometimes god uses the tool of humility humility to make you willing it is his grace that you would live in a moment of turmoil if, you, if it means eternity of uh, eternal life. How many has ever been humbled by the Lord? Me too. And guess what? It was probably because I was frustrated or unwilling or felt like I got trapped into a covenant. I can't tell you how many times living in the covenant have I reconsidered the covenant. Did I really want to be a part of this? And there's unwillingness that raises up in me. And then my relationship with God falls apart. My relationship with man falls apart. And then it's just back to me. 
Listen, we have to understand that the only way to live is in covenant to God. People get freaked out about that word because people don't like faithfulness anymore. Yeah. They just want to do whatever the heck they want. Yes. Because they're willing to go and do what they want, but they're not willing to go and sacrifice for others. That is true. Covenant is about sacrifice. And guess what? Christ did it first. He died for you. Yeah. Now you must die for others. Amen. Yes. Living in the covenant always requires willingness. And guess what? God can give it to you, but it comes off the back of breaking the backbone of rebellion. Yes. <laughs> Today, we must be willing. Amen. Yes. Hey, so with that being said, I had a conversation with some friends this week, and we were discussing 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it discussed to, to stay far away from men who hold to a form of the truth, but deny its what? Power. You can sit there and talk about the word, the scriptures. There are plenty of people with YouTube channels that you can go and listen to. They're teaching all day. There are plenty of places called churches you can go into and listen to biblical teaching all day. But do you recognize, I want to challenge you to read on your own time this week. Go back and read 2 Timothy chapter 3. You'll see a long list of really, really poor character traits in there. But you know what it's founded upon? Not living in covenant with our God. Because if you, don't have, if you're, if you deny the power, then you have now denied your ability to walk in the nature of our God. And if you have denied the power to walk in the nature of our God, in what nature will you walk in? The most disgusting and sinful thing you could possibly imagine, which is very accurately described in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Do you see why we cannot escape the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? We cannot escape the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live the life like our King Yeshua. Amen. So this is where we come into willingness. You guys turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Say engaged when you get there. Engaged. Engaged. Come on. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. This is a fun passage here. I promise it will challenge you. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, says the prophet Isaiah. Lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. That's a beautiful sight to see. Seraphim, or powerful celestial beings. Angels, if, you, if you're not tracking with me. Not, not really, but it's what you understand the word angel to be. <laughs> with, with two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Church, you see that Isaiah begins with the revelation and the acknowledgement of God's character. 
This is how God revealed his presence, his throne room to Isaiah. First of all, there are the most powerful celestial beings under God's authority flying around him and calling him holy, holy, holy. Calling him set apart, set apart, set apart. Calling him powerful. This is that he sits high above his enemies. That he is powerful and that he is mighty. Isaiah is in the presence of our God. And he is moved by his glory. Verse 5 says this. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then Isaiah acknowledges the deficit, say deficit, deficit, between himself and his God. I've heard a lot of conversations about this lately. You come to meet with your God, and you come to find out who he is, and you're like, I don't know what to do now. It all just seems like too much. Can you relate with that? <laughs> I can relate with that. He cries out, Lord, help me. I have seen your nature, but my nature is polluted. Then it says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, while he had, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. <laughs> like any of us, Isaiah, having encountered the Lord of glory, was in desperate need of God's divine power to fill him with the ability to accomplish the mission set before him. The premise of Isaiah's entire mission was to unite God's people who had gone astray back to the acknowledgement, empowerment, engagement, and discipline that occurs inside of God's presence. Amen. So what does God do? He walks him through the whole process right there in this one encounter. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. He says, send me. We've got to be a church that says, send me. He's looking for a people. He's looking for a people. He's been looking for them since the beginning of the creation of mankind. For just a few people who in this distracted, demented, polluted world would just say, against all odds and against all powers that I see in this earth, against all desires in my flesh, I'm asking you, God, to send me. Not, I will do it if you twist my arm into it. I will do it if you give me enough threats. I will do it if only you make it impossible for me to do anything else. But is this not the position we find ourselves in so often? Man, I wish I could take the next hour to give witness to moments in each one of your specific lives where I, in the moments where I've seen willingness overcome your heart. And then you move measures. You move years worth of development and one encounter with God just because you said, I'm willing. We watched this just recently. Just someone come up and say, I'm willing. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm willing. 
I don't know what it's going to cost me, but I'm willing. I don't know how much it's going to hurt, but I'm willing. I don't know how uncomfortable it's going to make me, but I'm willing. I don't know what my family members will end up saying about me, but I'm willing. I don't know if it's going to cost me my house, my cars, my careers, my money, my whatever, but I'm willing. Willingness is really powerful, huh? Verse 9 says, he said, go and tell this people. You keep on listening, but do not perceive. You keep on looking, but do not understand. He says, render the hearts of this people insensitive. Wow. God is saying to consider the state of these people's hearts insensitive or irreconcilable. This is the nature that they're walking in. Their ears are dull and their eyes are dim. You guys ever been in a pastoral moment with me and I'm telling you, your eyes don't look right? I know there are <laughs> quite a few in here. Yeah, you're, there are moments where you talk to somebody and they like come back and they're like, I didn't hear anything you just said. Those are dull ears, right? Or it's like, hey, I'm looking at you right now and I'm looking into and through your eyes and you look dead inside. You're like, those are damn eyes. You can see it, and you can especially see it with the discernment of the Holy Spirit. He says, God says, render these people this. He says, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Wow. Just a willing heart can get you healed in the first place. Church, you can see the throne of God and the train of his robe filling the temple. Are you still with me? You can see his throne. I mean, consider the absurdity of this. You can see his throne, the train of his robe filling the temple, smoke filling it in his presence. You can be empowered by his perfect and divine nature. And still he gives us instruction. And still, he gives us instructions on what we must say and what we must do. Like Isaiah, our willingness engages us into his nature and sets us on a trajectory to accomplish his will. That's why we can find ourselves in a divide of what we know who he, when we know who he is, we know what we ought to do, but then we're stuck in this middle place where you're like, I don't know how to get there. What's my least favorite thing to hear, Kendall? What's my least favorite statement that I hear people say? I'm confused. It's my least favorite thing to hear because 99% of the time you're not confused, you're just unwilling. Almost all the time. I hate the words, I'm confused. I cannot express to you enough. I'm confused. You're not confused. You don't want to change. That's the problem. And at the end of the day, church, we, men and women of God alike, all of us must come into an encounter with him and be willing so that we can move forward. We can have our arms twisted. We can be beaten into a corner. But then it's funny how we put ourselves into that position. We are the rebellious child misbehaving and mis misrepresenting the nature of our God, we are then disciplined, and then we're the ones that turn around and say, God, you are so wrathful. You're so angry. I don't feel like you love me. 
Well, yeah, you're getting spankings right now. You might not, you might not feel like it, but if you were willing to be obedient, it would be an entirely different story. You wouldn't feel like your God twists your arms into forcing you to do things because you showed up like, Lord, I'm just excited to please you today. I woke up this morning desiring to do everything that's on your to-do list today. Tell me, Lord, what is it? I, I, I want to be first. Give me the first opportunity. Man, our days would entirely change if we woke up with that mentality. Please, please, please acknowledge this today. Isaiah, more than anyone in this room ever has, saw the throne room and the glory of God. Then God sent him among his kinsmen to accomplish the mission. To live out your covenant with God, your covenant to your mission, and the covenant you made with his people, you must pass through the acknowledgement and the empowerment into willingness today. Without willingness, you will not look for the opportunity to say yes. You still eventually have to say yes. We're about to get to that. But you will not look for the opportunity You will not ask for the opportunity to say yes. We hear people so often say, wow, I want to serve God like these people. It's just so powerful and radical, but I don't see the opportunity in my life and for my family. It's just not possible. Your life is just different. Your life is just special. Friends, this is for you first, but also for anyone else who has ears to hear it. It takes discipline to get up and execute the will of God every day. Pastor Landon is about to crack into that subject for us. But it takes willingness to have the eyes and the ears to perceive the opportunities to run to. Say this, send me, I'll go. Send me, I'll go. To the work he has given you to do. Say, I'm willing, I will go. I'm willing, I'll go. To the people, to the people. He has given you to love and to work with. Say, I will go. I will go. To live in covenant with him and to make covenant with him or with others in him means to show up willing. But now you got to wake up every day and make the decision matching that willingness. Don't you just love when Pastor Kaysen preaches to you? Jumping up and down. Let's go! <laughs> We're getting wrecked over here yes. by Pastor Kaysen. No. Oh, be careful. No. Be careful. <laughs> All right, listen. We'll talk after service. Listen, we've talked, about, we've talked about the character of Yahweh. We've talked about how the mission is not possible unless it's done through the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the willingness you have to have to say, send me, I'll go. Because we have to understand this this morning. Without those three things in that order... You do not get to do anything. That's right. In John 5, Jesus embodied the character of Yahweh. In Matthew 3, the mission that he had been given was made possible when he was anointed with Holy Spirit. 
in Isaiah 6, Jesus reflects Isaiah's willingness in his heart to say, send me, I'll go. Turn with me to Luke 22. So we're going to land this message today. This is the peak of what we discussed. It was when we were discussing this part of the message, we were like, this is the message we are to preach tomorrow or today. And the rest the Lord gave to us. We've talked about how sometimes it could be hard to see the character of Yahweh, but it's easier when you're empowered with his spirit. But the hardest to this point yet has been the willingness. And it's not easy to be willing. We get that. But it's a simple decision. Send me. I'll go. No matter what the cost. No matter who it offends. No matter who cuts me. Send me. I'll go. We come to maybe the hardest thing that we ever have to actually get up and do every morning. And that's do. The will of the Lord. Verse 39 in Luke 22. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, Jesus, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. I don't know about you growing up, but when I was growing up, if I remember correctly, because that's what came to mind, I remember either learning or being told that they were told to pray so they wouldn't fall asleep. Like, it's just written. It's Peshat. It's obvious. The Lord said, pray so you don't fall into temptation. What? The temptation to fall asleep. Okay, makes enough sense. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. There's got to be more. In the moment that Jesus is in, put yourself in the shoes. We've talked about the character. We've talked about Holy Spirit. We've talked about willingness. Put yourself in the shoes of Jesus in the garden on his last night, a free man. And he tells his disciples, go pray that you may not fall into temptation. I think Jesus knows something the disciples are not fully grasping, though he's told them several times already. That in a matter of moments, he's to be betrayed, taken captive, and it will lead to being killed in one of the most gruesome fashions known to mankind. But that it won't be the end of the story. He's encouraging his disciples to pray so that in the face of adversity that is coming and is already present for them in this moment, they, like Jesus, might stand strong and not back down in the face of the temptation to what? Run away. Or to escape the potential consequence of being caught in covenant with Yeshua. Being caught in covenant with Yeshua has consequences. Verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's a willingness in Jesus' heart posture that is allowing him to come before the Father this way. He's trying to escape. 
I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the case. The willingness in Jesus' heart posture, he's already had the willingness, his whole ministry up to this point, to say, send me, I'll go. Send me, I'll go. Send me, I'll go. He's done everything up to this point to prove that he's the one who wants to go. That he's the one who wants to do it. From that place, with no doubt in his mind the father would think of him any less, he approaches him feeling no shame and says, could you possibly take this cup from me? Not because I want to escape, but maybe there's another way to get it done. Maybe it doesn't have to hurt as bad. Maybe I don't have to sacrifice my life. He's not praying to escape his responsibility in general. He's already said, send me, I'll go. He was human in his flesh. We know that he suffered tremendously through the route of redemption that he chose to take. Yet on what could arguably be the most stressful and anxious-filled night of his life up to this point, he tells his father again for the final time, the final opportunity he has to say it, he says it. Send me, I'll go. Jesus' act of sacrifice within the covenant relationship is one that is engaged by his willingness to do whatever it takes to uphold the covenant. Let me, however, make one thing clear as we transition into that final point. Jesus still had to get up and do his part. He had to get up and do it. A willingness with no effort or action attached to it is useless in the kingdom. Get that through your head. We just talked about how hard it is to be willing. And that when you're confused, you're more than likely just not willing. Let's say you make it past that point and you are willing. Doesn't mean a thing if you don't get up and do something with your willingness. Doesn't mean anything. Jesus knew that. We've come to the realization, the three of us, that these four points we're presenting to you today are not just ways to live within the covenant, but that these are four musts to live within the covenant to be able to fulfill all of your calling and the fullness of your purpose and potential in his kingdom. This leads us to the fact that living within the covenant must also be executed by our discipline. Verse 43 says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Strengthening him from on high. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Listen, some of you in this room this morning are still learning that life in the kingdom is not all sunshine and rainbows. That's the reality of the situation. It's not sunshine and rainbows. There isn't this perfect peace. Yeshua said, I came to bring a sword, not peace as we see peace. It had to be messy, it had to hurt. It had to be borderline impossible without the empowerment of Holy Spirit to get up and do what you were supposed to do. That's right. 
Scripture says that as Jesus is wrestling with this reality that he's about to have to go face head on, I like to use the verbiage like a collision with a freight train. He's about to take this freight train head on and eat it for the sake of every human that would be born from there on out. And he's in so much agony that Scripture says. He's literally sweating drops of blood. That's sobering because I can imagine there's not too many situations that are more painful and difficult than this. Being fully transparent, it puts a lot of situations that I deem stressful to utter shame. Utter shame. Can you read Hebrews 4 for me? Yes. We're going to read Hebrews 4, verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What are we supposed to live with? Confidence. What are we supposed to live with? Confidence. Confidence. Because from that place of confidence is where we find mercy and grace as help in the time of need. Could there be a time of need more prevalent for Jesus in this moment? He's about to give his life away for all of us in this room. And he says, Father, I need help. I don't know if I have the strength to get up myself and go carry this out. Would you help me? Others of you also need to realize that your weaknesses are not sin. But they can lead you to committing sin. Jesus was one who lived a life with weakness. Same as you and me. Temptation, same as everyone in this room. The difference is he just didn't allow himself to fall into sin with those weaknesses. How did he do that? He knew something that Paul would later write about in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, we got two powerful words from Paul here to give you the last scriptures of the day. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I, says Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me reread that for you. I am content with weaknesses. I am content with hardships. I am content with persecutions. I am content in calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He also wrote just chapters earlier in Second Corinthians chapter 8. He says, but now finish doing it also. So that just as there was the readiness to desire it, or willingness, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. <laughs> if he makes you able, if he supernaturally empowers you to be able to do it, then now it is within your ability. Yeah. Whether or not your weak fleshly self was able to or not, you are now able to because of him. 
And Paul says, you've been made able to do it. Now, let your action match the voice of willingness that you spoke with earlier. Listen, Jesus lived a life with weakness, but the difference between him and you is he didn't pout about it. He got up and did something with it. He let the Lord empower him in his weakness. He did not cry about it. He didn't stay in the garden for hours upon end, weeping, asking the Lord to take the cup from him. I bet you it wasn't more than five minutes. And he was like, Lord, I'm going to ask you one more time. I'm weak. If there's any way possible, take it from me. Yahweh's like, sends an angel, I'm going to strengthen you. Yeshua's like, there's my answer. It's time to get up and go. It's time to get up and go. Jesus found supernatural strength in the midst of his weakness. And it's what gave him the power to get up and do what was right. Listen, both of these scriptures, as Pastor Kaysen was saying, are powerhouse scriptures from Paul. And they're both summed up in the man Jesus in this moment in the garden, in his time of prayer. And all of this is happening at once while he's praying. And look what happens as he's praying. He's strengthened from on high. He's lifted up in his weakness, and he's empowered to get up and do the task that's set before him. That is what a glorified king looks like. One who's not afraid to take the gunpowder scars. One who gets up and does what his father told him to do. This is where the engagement of Jesus' willingness partners with the supernatural empowerment to get up and do what needs to be done. He says, Father, I'm willing, but I need your empowerment to get up and do it. He did not just ask for help and hope the Father made him do it. He didn't weep and just hope that the Father would lift him up and take him like a ghost and take care of all the things he needed to take care of. He said, I want to pay full price for the redemption of creation. I want it to be through me. Use me to do it. Can somebody say faithful to the covenant? Faithful to the covenant. Verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. I don't know about you, but Pastor Kaysen and I discovered this beauty together. Sleeping for sorrow. You ask me how I just assume that it's not, that just don't fall in temptation because you don't want to go to sleep. Because... The, Luke writes, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Sorrow is agony. Sorrow is misery. Sorrow is in the face of adversity. This is how you feel. You're not happy. You're depressed. You're down. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. They're sleeping through the difficulty. Jesus is on his face bleeding out of agony and they're sleeping because they can't stay awake for a second in the midst of the agony that Jesus is facing and they're not even the ones that are about to walk through it. Listen, these are some of the final words Jesus spoke to his disciples before he's arrested. He says the same thing he said before though now the scriptures tell us why they were sleeping. They couldn't take it. They were not willing to put themselves through what needed to be done. They were sleeping for sorrow. In the midst of challenging, sorrowful times, they slept. 
I'm so stressed. It's so hard. I don't know how to process it. I'm confused. I'm distraught. I'm just going to go take a nap. I'm always tired. Sleeping for sorrow. Asleep in the light. Can you relate to any of these things? It's shameful for the disciples in this moment. They might not know everything that's going on, but they've been told, and they think they're confused. They just didn't want to take it as reality, and they didn't want to listen to it, believing it would happen. But Jesus told them several times before they got to this place in Scripture. Before they stepped foot in the garden, they should have known what was happening. Jesus told them. But they used every excuse in the book, ended up sleeping through sorrow. Listen. Jesus reloaded during a time of difficulty instead of retreating during a time of uncertainty. Y'all stand up. He reloaded during a time of difficulty instead of retreating during a time of uncertainty. I want to quote something Pastor Kaysen said earlier. He said that all who seek to accomplish the will of God in their lives, to complete their missions, are required to acknowledge God's character, be supernaturally empowered to imitate it, engage with him and others around you through willingness, and execute the will of God in unity with God and his people. Again, Earlier, I mentioned that I think we have some work to do regarding our responsibility within the covenant and the ones we've made with each other. Because let's be real for a second. You can't walk in covenant with Yahweh if there's no one to lean on to help you do it. Likewise, you can't help anyone else with their covenant with Yahweh if you're not in a strong one yourself. You need each other. You need Yahweh. The answer to the question, do you go to his people or him? The answer is yes. All of it. it. Together. Equal measures across the board. You can't do it without each other. And you can't do it without him. These are four musts to live within the covenant with Christ and with each other. He is the head and we are the body. We all work within a covenant with the head to carry out his will here on earth together. We're not going to do an altar call, but I want you to take a serious, sober assessment of where you stand with this. When things get hard within the covenant, whether that's with each other with your pastors, with the Lord. Do you reload or retreat? Are you sleeping away your sorrows in the midst of challenging times like the disciples were, just because it's easy? Only to just wake up and find yourself right back in reality? It doesn't do anything, but do you find yourself hoping it will? Are you running away 
like a few of them did when things got hard. Only one was at the foot of the cross. The rest ran away out of cowardice. Are you walking in the character of Yahweh, walking with his spirit, being engaged in your willingness and walking the covenant out by way of discipline? If you're not doing it perfectly, which, spoiler alert, I know you're not, because I'm not, none of us are, then we have work to do. Listen, Henry Stanley lived a life of obedience knowing that there would be wounds, hurts, dangerous encounters face-to-face with death, and several other hard things. Yet he stood tall and displayed obedience through his actions. And he exemplified the character, spirit empowerment, willingness, and discipline to act that is required to uphold a covenant relationship. As we leave here this morning and we pray and break, let us keep these things in mind and pray as Jesus instructed his disciples to. That we might not fall into the temptations of crumbling under sorrow or running away from the hard things in life. Pastor Mike said something last week that struck me, and he says, at the beginning of his message and the end, he said, we want to empower you to further your co-mission with God so that you can indeed move forward with your life, advancing God's kingdom through all pains, through all of your achievements, regrets, unknowns, and failures of that life, and let the truth set you free to reload in times of difficulty instead of retreat in times of uncertainty. It's usually me that it's the heavy messages, but well, you get these three up here and it's what you get. <laughs> I'm going to leave you with this in Revelation 3. In case you were just thinking this is our perspective on the word, this is words that Yeshua himself spoke to his church, and it may be the word that he would say if he stood here today. In Revelation 3, to the church of Sardis, right? It's funny, Sardis is like a couple different words, Prince of Joy or Red Ones, right? It's, It's interesting because you could be covered in the blood of Jesus and be full of joy for it. For these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being fully alive in every way, and that's what everybody sees and thinks of you. But I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're asleep in the night. You're wide awake, but sorrow and the difficulty of the kingdom has lured you asleep. Wake up, strengthen what does remain and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and what you have heard. You know what he doesn't say? Be so preoccupied with what you don't have yet and what you've lost. No, place your eyes upon what you do have and what remains and I'll work with that. And then watch this, (laughs) obey it. 
and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time that I come. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled, interesting word, their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. And I will never blot out his name from the book of life in case you thought it could not be done. But will acknowledge his name before my father and his heavenly counsel. He who has an ear, let him use it. Let him hear. And the spirit or what the spirit is currently saying to all churches. Can you hear the message of the Lord? What was the message of the Lord today? Wake up before it's too late. Mighty God, we thank you for a sobering word. We thank you, Father, for speaking to us and saying, wake up, pay attention. Because although you thought your reputation was one of being fully alive, that very thing will catch you off guard. Fix your eyes upon the author and perfecter of your faith. Mighty God, we focus on you, King Yeshua. You are the centrality of our life. You are the truth. You are the way. Wake us up. Sober us that we might mature in your presence. That we might, Lord God, be reminded of the precious covenant that you cut for us. That we might, in turn, be a covenant of people that don't mind being cut in order to be part of it. We love you, mighty God. And let us show it with our deeds and let us show it with our love for one another right now. In the name of Yeshua, we pray.